Hello and welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's made possible this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell and I'm joined as always for 162 episodes by my co-host Stephen Hackett. Hi Stephen. Hey Jason, how are you? Doing great. Um, as always, lots going on in space and mm-hmm. uh, and on planet Earth, which technically, since it's a planet, it is in space. So we're all in space, really. There's there's no bounds to what this podcast could talk, talk about. That's right. I want to start with Ingenuity. Little Mars helicopter update. Yeah, it's on Mars, a planet in space. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of amazing to me just how quickly Ingenuity sort of faded into like, oh yeah, there's just a helicopter on Mars. Just yeah, a, a normal thing. <laughs> it's fine. You know, it happens. Yeah. Uh, so they, uh, the team, the running Ingenuity, they are entering sort of a, a new phase of flight because the seasons are changing at Mars. And that means the air may become thinner. And if you think about the way a helicopter works, it has to use its rotors to push against the air to be able to, to stay aloft. Got a lift, yeah. So if that air is thinner, you have to rotate faster. And a short uh, test flight was taken last week. That was the 14th flight. Just 23 seconds, went up about 5 meters and over about 2 meters. But what's unique about this test, it was the first time the rotors were brought up to their top speed of 2,700 RPM. And this is a speed that was not... Uh, tested here on Earth. The the hardware is seemingly capable of it, although there there are concerns that this may be at the limit of what the the Ingenuity hardware can take. And there's a a very interesting thing that happens at 2,800 RPM. So in combination of the wind and the motion of the rotors, the tips of the rotor blades could be like 80% the speed of sound on Mars. Air is much thinner, so the mm. speed of sound is lower than what we're used to here on Earth. They don't know what happens as they approach that. There's also concerns about uh, resonant frequencies taking place in the hardware. So you have more vibration because of the higher speed, and you don't want things to be... Um, uh, vibrating throughout the spacecraft in a way that would cause damage. You also have to obviously give a lot more power to the motor to do this. So it's all very sort of at the edge, but this is very much in the spirit, I feel like, of the Ingenuity program. This is a a very kind of pushing the bounds type mission, right? It was It was a bonus credit for the Perseverance mission to be able to do this. And now they're going to see just how far they can push their hardware. I think it's really exciting. Yeah, so they did their they did their quick uh, a quick test at full speed. Yeah, uh, so they uh, are going to work in the coming months to address issues if they come up. They will go on longer test flights at this new high speed twenty seven hundred RPM, and uh, we'll keep everybody everybody posted. But boy, Ingenuity just continues to impress and really go above and beyond. I think what was ever uh, really expected of it. 
Right. They're playing with the house's money now. And I know everybody sort of expects that these things are going to last a lot longer than they were rated to. But I, th- I get the feeling with this one especially that they they made no promises, right? They're like, well, we don't mm-hmm. know how this is going to work. We're going to do a little bit and then we'll see. And instead, it, it it's uh, still going. So that's awesome. Yeah, really awesome. Let's go further out into space into okay. uh, to sort of round Jupiter. I got a Juno update for you. Ooh, nice. So Juno made a few passes. Uh, you know, it goes over the poles and all that. Well, they've adjusted the the uh, the Juno orbit and they made a few passes over the Great Red Spot, which, it, it, you know, if you've seen a picture of Jupiter, it's this big red spot. It's a giant storm on Jupiter. It's been visible. It, it's unclear, but probably as long as we've been observing the surface of Jupiter, like from the beginning, I think my understanding is sort of like there's some debates about whether it was originally visible, but it's quite possible that it's been there so long that it predates our observations of Jupiter, this single storm. It's 10,000 miles wide, 16,000 kilometers, which means that they always say Earth would fit inside the storm. Um, But the truth is that we didn't actually know the depth of the Great Red Spot storm so you know earth could you could put earth like through it like it was a basketball hoop but how much of the earth would actually be in the storm if you did that and there were lots of different guesses about how deep the storm was uh tens of kilometers maybe super thin big really wide mile wide and an inch deep right or maybe it goes all the way down to the core who knows nobody knows lots of ideas juno took a look um, actually following up a measurement uh, using uh, microwave observations from Juno, which um, which sort of pinned it down a little bit, but it was still kind of unclear. Juno made some new observations that actually measured the gravity changes caused by the storm, which is a wild idea. And you put that together with the microwave measurements that were done before, and they can say that they've locked it down to a range it is between 300 and 500 kilometers deep which when you think about 16,000 kilometers wide it's it's still a mile wide and an inch deep basically but it's not super thin it's much deeper than a, a lot of people thought it might be um and another interesting thing, and if you think about Jupiter, it starts to get really complicated really fast, sort of like thinking about the sun, right? Because you're, you're talking about fluid dynamics of, of all the gas and, and how they, it moves in this enormous uh, planet in this case. So there are jet streams that have been measured that move around the Great Red Spot, and they extend um, as much as 3,000 kilometers down, um, but the Great Red Spot doesn't. And again, this is one of those, like, why is it like that? Why is it structured that way? And that's like, that's the next puzzle to ponder here. So this information gives scientists more uh, things to investigate and in trying to understand why Jupiter is the way it is. Um, and there are a couple other new Jupiter papers related to Juno that I throw out there uh, since I'm mentioning Jupiter, which is there, there are more details about the circulation of gas through all the different belts and zones of Jupiter. They traced the ammonia and looked at the movement of ammonia through Jupiter's atmosphere and discovered that it's basically zipping along on these jet streams, move very fast all around Jupiter. And uh, there was another study that offered more detail about the polar cyclones at Jupiter, um, this is a weird thing that happens. Saturn has something like this too. Uh, there are basically eight polar cyclones at the North Pole that remain 
um, locked in place and create an octagon. And there are five at the South Pole that create a pentagon. And it seems like, based on this study and the details that they've done and their observations, that they're basically locked in place. They don't really move at all. Um, and they are probably very, very deeply rooted in the atmosphere. They go, they go way down and then they're kind of locked in place. So anyway, this is what happens when you have a spacecraft that's able to make many, many, many passes over Jupiter is we've got way more understanding of all sorts of aspects of Jupiter, thanks to Juno uh, making those passes every, you know, every few weeks. I end up with a headache very quickly trying to uh, read about this stuff because it's, it's just so different from what we're used to on our inner rocky planet that we call home. Yeah, it, it is just a, like I said, it's like this fluid dynamics thing. It's like when people talk about circulation of of heat and, and magnetism and all sorts of things in the sun too. It's just like, it's a scale that you can't really understand. And it's a complexity that is kind of hard to understand. But um, But Juno is helping the people who are trying to understand it. So that's cool. It's cool they did it too. So so Juno is flying at about 130,000 miles an hour and they can use the tracking antenna for the deep space network and it can measure speed changes as small as 0.01 millimeters per second. I mean, that seems awfully accurate for something that's zipping over the top of a planet. Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I'm going to move us to Florida. Okay, a little closer to home. Florida also on a planet, and therefore, I guess Florida is in space. Yeah, sometimes it feels like a different planet. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Florida. Uh, we've been awaiting the launch of Crew Three, so this is the uh, commercial crew program flying on SpaceX. They were yep. going to launch over the weekend, and there was a, a weather delay, which happens. Um, and then they were going to launch uh, tomorrow on the third. Uh, now the launch window opens on November 6th. And so what NASA said is there is a minor medical issue involving one of the crew. Quick to point out that it's not COVID-19 related. It's not a medical emergency. So something minor is going on. And uh, they are going to be uh, hopefully lifting off on Saturday the 6th, 11.36 p.m. Uh, Eastern time is that uh, is that launch window. And this kicks off, you know, Jason, our favorite thing of tra uh, tracking uh, who is at the space station and how busy it is. Oh, yeah. Crew 2 is still there. They'll return home in mid-November. The, so there'll be some overlap where there's basically the, the, the you know, there's a, a no, you know, full occupancy sign yep. hanging outside. House party <laughs> at the ISS. Everybody parties at the ISS that week. Yep. And Crew 3 includes Thomas Mashburn, who... Fl has flown both on the shuttle and the Soyuz. So uh, lots of experience there with Thomas Mashburn and uh, the other three astronauts, two Americans and one from ESA. Uh, it'll be their, their first space flight. And uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the toilet we should mention. Space toilets. Uh, yeah, so SpaceX had a problem with the Crew Dragon toilet. Um, it, this was discovered on Inspiration4 where um, it came back and they uh, they had they had this uh, discovery that there was some uh, basically a hose comes undone and some uh, urine that's been treated with a chemical ends up uh, like down below the the deck like just loose leaking which is gross I mean actually because it's treated it's it's 
potentially worse because they were worried it, it might actually corrode the metal down there. They did some tests and they said probably not. Um, they called up to crew two at the ISS and said, can you see if this happened to you too? And they looked and the answer is yes. It also happened to them too. So basically for the, the dragon that crew three is flying on, they have uh, replaced the, uh, the, the hose with a, a, basically a pipe that is welded to the superstructure so the idea there is that there's nothing to come undone because it's it's uh it's attached now and presumably all the other crew dragons will have this repair once they get back so a little bit gross but not a safety problem and actually a bigger deal on inspiration for than crew two you think crew two has been there a long time but they haven't been using the facilities and they weren't in uh the crew dragon as long as the people were in the Inspiration 4 mission. Right. And so the, there wasn't as much use of the crew toilet to have the problem, but it is there. So it's fixed for crew three. And uh, and so they'll be up there and then crew two will come home after you know their, their week of good feelings where there's a Soyuz and, and two crew dragons at the ISS. And uh, we are getting uh, closer and closer to the launch of the James Webb. Yeah, perilously close to the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, which arrived in French Guiana on October 12th by boat from Southern California. Had to go through the the Panama Canal and everything. It is now in the high bay at uh, the ESA facility in, uh, in French Guiana, beginning its launch prep. ESA just had this Ariane 5 launch on October 23rd. And, you know, one of these things when a rocket goes off of a particular class, they then do a final review. Were there any problems? Were there any issues? And uh, the new telescope is launching uh, on an Ariane 5. So when they clear the safety of the launch on October 23rd, basically the James Webb Space Telescope is next up and they will continue with their sort of prep for that. Um, so they have, uh, they, they have, they're getting it closer. Super exciting. Scheduled for December 18th. That is really just right around the corner. Right. Although Uh, they're going to start on Saturday, right? I mean, I guess technically they, they begin their launch prep on Saturday. Yeah. It's super exciting. It seems like everything is running smoothly and even ahead of schedule, which is weird to say in a segment about the James Webb Space Telescope. (laughs) I mean, you know, are you ahead of schedule? Eight years late, but we'll give them some grace here. So yeah, so keeping out for that, we'll be continuing to talk about that as December 18th comes closer and closer. Uh, but meanwhile, a space telescope a little bit closer to home, Hubble is back in safe mode. Remember, this is where we were a couple of months ago, an issue with the computer, and they went to the backup. Uh, over the, the last uh, week and a half or so, they were getting... Um, there's basically synchronization messages that make sure that all the instruments are on the same timing and they fell out of sync. And so that automatically triggers a safe mode. The team effectively cleared those errors and the Hubble came back up, but then went down again two days later for similar reasons. And that's kind of where things stand today. Um, So NASA said just yesterday that they are evaluating the data and trying to understand the synchronization issues between the instruments. Uh, and so that's going to take at least a week. So I think this will be like last time. They're going to take a couple of weeks, figure out what's going on, and and hopefully go from there and be able to get it, uh, get Hubble back up and running. But, you know, it's an aging spacecraft, and this, yeah. is, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll watch it. We'll keep an eye on it. Right, we've got 
more to talk about. We've got some SLS news, which is very exciting, and mm-hmm. uh, and and then we've got some answers to questions we had. I think last time about what's the future of uh, the ISS and uh, other low Earth orbit things. Um, we have some interesting announcements that have happened the last two weeks. But before we get to that, Stephen, could you uh, tell the people about our sponsor? I will. The sponsor is Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to let you build your online presence and run your business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, they have you covered with everything you need. They combine cutting-edge design and world-class engineering. You start with a professionally designed template and you use drag-and-drop tools to customize it and make it your own. You can customize things like the look and feel, the settings, the products you have on sale, everything with just a few clicks. And of course, they're all optimized to look great on mobile. Your content just automatically adjusts, so it looks good on every device. And this makes it easier than ever to establish your home online. There's nothing to patch or upgrade. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They have a system to let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. They have all the tools you need for SEO and email marketing as well. I just built a Squarespace site a couple of weeks ago. Another podcast of mine here on Relay called Connected. We're selling some merch, and I just, in the course of an evening, built a little uh, Squarespace site. So it's got a page, really nice pictures. I have a store. It was really easy to hook up to my Stripe account, so you can buy the merchandise and we get paid and then I can ship it to you uh, in a month or so. And it's, it's all just built in with Squarespace. I wasn't having to bolt on other things. It just, uh, it just worked. So head on over to squarespace.com slash liftoff for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code liftoff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name. That's squarespace.com slash liftoff. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the show. Our thanks to Squarespace for the support of LIFTOFF and all of RelayFM. It is time, Jason, for the SLS segment. Ding! Please stand by for the Space Launch System segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. Ding! 2022 could be the year of SLS. <laughs> oh no, are we doing this again? Oh well, you know, it eventually worked for Commercial Crew. I'm gonna okay. We have a little document that we go in uh, to read what we're gonna talk about in an episode. And I'm just gonna let people behind the scenes to know that Stephen has put in this header as 2022 colon year of SLS, and I am now going to add a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably fair. <laughs> uh, but there is lots of good news on the SLS and Artemis 1 front. Uh, SLS that will be used for this launch is now fully stacked, complete with the Orion capsule up on top, complete with the uh, the escape system up on top. That won't be armed for this because this is an uncrewed mission, but that's way up at the tippy, tippy top. And top. yeah, it looks fantastic. It is all put together, which is super exciting. And... Uh, their plans now are to conduct a wet dress rehearsal. So they will uh, take the SLS out to the launch pad and go through all of the flight and ground system hardware as if they were going to launch. So they will hook everything up. They'll have all the data streaming back. They'll fuel it up. They just aren't going to go anywhere. After that, they'll roll it back to the VAB, address any issues. And assuming that all goes well, that will unlock 
three separate launch windows. And the reason for these different launch windows is complex, uh, but we'll get to that. So the first one is February 12th through 26th. The second one is March 12th through 26th. And then the third one is April 8th through the 23rd. So it's basically two weeks on, two weeks off. Now, with this particular flight, they're not trying to sync exactly to catch and rendezvous with the International Space Station. They don't have to really end up anywhere at any given time. (laughs) You're just going out to the moon and back. Uh, But there are some... There are some opportunities uh, or some things to address within these 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 dates. Um, the The big thing is the location and the relationship between uh, the Earth, Moon, and sometimes where the Sun is in the sky. Uh, the The Orion has big solar panels, and they want to make sure that they can fully utilize those on the mission. Uh, you also have the ground systems, and uh, from what I've read elsewhere, and I have a couple links in the show notes, but they can only kind of be ready for a set amount of time, and then you have to recycle some of that stuff. And uh, they want to make sure that they are clear of any other launches, any other things going on at the Space Center. And so uh, lots of things to contend with there, but that is three open windows Getting to the moon, you've got to hit that translunar injection point. Think about when we talk about Apollo, right? They would go up, they'd orbit the Earth, and they would have their uh, translunar injection burn. And there are just some days where the Earth and moon's alignment just aren't right for that burn, uh, at least for the Block 1 SLS with its upper stage. You know, it may be that in the future, with the more powerful upper stage, that they can have even wider launch windows, but uh, at least for now that they have, uh, you've got to uh, hit it kind of in the the set time frame there. I think it's really interesting that all of a sudden we're talking about dates and talking about how the launch window works. It's weird, and where right? where <laughs> it's going instead of many, many years of talking about basically the assembly of parts and the testing of parts of this rocket, that they're actually saying, like, here's when we could go. It's a big deal. It's huge, man. I mean, it really is a decade or more worth of work to mm-hmm. get to this point. Uh, just to, to wrap up my previous thought, one of the, the last constraints is uh, splashdown and recovery. So they, they got to go fetch ah. the Orion out of the ocean. They want to do that during the day. <laughs> and so all that right. is a uh, factor. So we are really, I mean, getting here into 2022, February, March, or April, as long as there's no more issues, the SLS will leave the ground for the first time. It's quite a thing to think that in a year there could be SLS launched, uh, James Webb Space Telescope deployed, and Boeing Starliner operational. Right. Maybe? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Let me let me take you um, further into the future. Then let's get back to our just complete speculation via yes. press release and news report about future space. Which is, I feel like that's it, one of the categories in this podcast is definitely like what might happen eventually, someday, eventually, maybe, possibly. Like, uh, right? There's the concrete stuff, which is we learned this. There's the concrete stuff that's they're going to launch this, and here are the people and all of that. And then there's the sort of like. 
maybe this will happen someday kind of stuff. And that's what I want to talk about because we have been talking about what happens toward the end of the decade when the International Space Station runs out of life. And it's going to happen regardless of the will of the U.S. government and the Russian government and space agency and other international partners to keep ISS going. The fact is that a lot of those elements have been up there for 20 years and they're not going to last forever. Um, And so there needs to be and we've talked about like why what's next are is there a plan to revitalize iss is there a plan to do something new and we have talked about the fact that nasa has put together this program that is a commercial space program like commercial crew and commercial cargo that is a commercial space station low earth orbit program where they are going to fund companies to build commercial low earth orbit space stations so like basically they're going to provide some seed money and say we will pay you to do this for us but more on the line of spacex and boeing building commercial crew where you own it you have to develop it but we will provide some seed money and say we will pay you for ongoing services if you can build essentially build your own space station Mm -hmm. the idea would be that that would replace eventually the international space station with some commercial space stations that were not operated by nasa but that nasa would and isa and anyone else who wanted to basically would be able to pay for use and space in those space stations and in the last two weeks i don't know something was in the water uh two different companies or two different consortiums groups of companies announced their intent to build commercial low earth orbit space stations so i don't know if these are going to happen i'm going to talk about them in turn i think it's fair to say that there's a lot of promises that may or may not be delivered yes in these two stories the time frames may be unrealistic the money may be unrealistic who knows but i will say that i suspect that somewhere in here is going to be the answer to what happens after the International Space Station. I feel like this is the first time that I've seen something where I said, oh, okay, this is where we're heading. Uh, and I think if if it's, I agree with you, and if it's not one of these two programs, it's something in this vein. It'll be something like that, exactly. And I, in fact, I wonder, and I, I know that SpaceX is focused on other stuff right now. And so building a space station may not be for them. But their absence from these two announcements makes me raise an eyebrow because, like, they're the ones who've got the operational crewed vehicle. And I'll also point out that the, the international docking adapter, uh, I assume, will be on both of these uh, stations mm-hmm. if they come to fruition. And so will SpaceX be involved in some way? I, I would imagine that if they're not going to be involved in one of these, they'll be involved in something else. But it does seem that SpaceX is more focused on doing uh, Starship and working with NASA on the moon. And, and these are organizations that have said, we're going to step up and put together a plan for commercial low Earth orbit. So let me take them in turn. The first announcement was Starlab. That's the name of it. It's a good name. Yeah, yeah right. Like, I, I feel like it's that's like Skylab. And then and then there was like was what was the, the module that was in the space shuttle? Was that like Skyhab, Starhab, Space Hab, Space yeah. Hab, something like that? So like, yeah, okay. So it's and this is so this group, it's Voyager Space, which is a company that actually is the majority owner of NanoRacks. Uh, NanoRacks is a company that pro- that really has made a name um, building uh, small things to be sent into space for places like the ISS. 
and on spacecraft. And so Voyager Space is the majority owner of NanoRacks. NanoRacks is part of this announcement. And a little upstart company called Lockheed Martin. <laughs> oh, I think I've heard of them. <laughs> I think you got to, for something like this, you probably got to have a major space uh, aerospace company involved in your announcement. And this one is Lockheed that's doing this. They claim it will be operational by 2027. Good luck, everybody. And it is. they say it has been developed, quote, to enable the growing space economy and meet pent-up customer demand for space services such as materials research, plant growth, I was raised my eyebrow at that too, and astronaut activity. So they're saying we there is demand for this stuff. And hmm. the uh, I think the implication there is one, that the ISS can't meet demand, whether because of availability or because of pricing, the cost of getting things to the ISS, but that there is demand for uh, materials research in zero G for plant growth, like uh, okay, plant uh, grown plants, doing do more of that kind of. Uh, can we grow our own food on the way to the moon or, or or Mars or whatever? Like okay, and astronaut activity, right? Which is fundamentally like ISS stuff. Um, Lockheed is the manufacturer and technical integrator. Voyager Space is the strategy and the money and getting investment in this. And then I'm just going to read something that they put in their press release. They said, the basic elements of the Starlab space station include a large inflatable habitat. Woo! Yeah. See, Bigelow Aerospace may be gone, but uh, the idea of inflatables in space in order to launch with a small thing and then in space it, it unfolds to become a big thing it's a good idea, folks. It's a really good idea. Uh, large inflatable habitat designed and built by Lockheed Martin. A metallic docking node. So you, you probably don't want to dock against the, the basketball, right? You want to... No, no. <laughs> like, that's a little softer. You keep that away. You need something but rigid there to something, yeah, smack for it to catch the spacecraft. So a metallic docking node, a power and propulsion element, a large robotic arm for servicing cargo and payloads, and a state-of-the-art laboratory system to host a comprehensive research, science, and manufacturing capability. Starlab will be able to continuously host up to four astronauts for conducting critical science and research that's what their press release says so they're going they're saying we're going to have we're going to have uh four astronauts we're going to have uh, an inflatable habitat and that's what star lab is going to be and and uh seems this one seems a little more constrained than the other one or constrained than the iss where they're saying sort of like we're not it's going to be modular but not modular in the sense that we're going to add you know add more modules on and expand it. And I, I don't know whether that's part of their capability or not. It seems like they're being like four astronauts. That's our goal. Mm -hmm. um, but, but still this is, this is a uh, Nanorax and Lockheed Martin saying we're going to build a space station. Yeah. It's, it's like the minimal viable space station. I think. I think so with, with people and stuff and, and it's a, uh, it's a cool idea. So not to be outdone. And I wonder what the sequence is here. My guess is that, Nanorax and Lockheed got wind that there was going to be an announcement, and so they preempted them with their announcement. That's going to be my guess. Yeah, because Nanorax was on the 21st, and then Blue Origin was the 26th or the 27th, I think. And it could be that they hurried their announcement out after Nanorax yeah. and Voyager Space, but I don't think that was it. I think they wanted to I, I think they wanted to preempt with Star Lab, knowing that this other thing was coming. So Blue Origin and Sierra Space, the makers of the Dream Chaser, which is this very cool idea that has not really come to fruition yet where there's the little it looks like a little baby space shuttle. Mm -hmm. Yep. That can fly cargo and potentially crew. Um they announced something called Orbital Reef, which they refer to as in in 
an amazing way of making space seem as pedestrian and boring as possible. A mixed-use business park in space. <laughs> That's what every little kid dreams of <laughs> visiting in orbit. <laughs> Right? And they can take a little <laughs> shuttle over to the strip mall in space that's next door for lunch, I guess. Um, mixed-use business park in space. It's uh, My in-laws live in Irvine, California, which is like all mixed-use business park now. And I just think, you know, you get a little green lawn and then there's some parking and then there's a low-lying building and you check in at the front desk. But in space, not that exciting, but it is an exciting idea. So Orbital Reef. Uh, Blue Origin says they are going to launch it with the New Glenn rocket, which, again, is in development. We've They've only been doing New Shepard, which is suborbital. New Glenn is their orbital rocket that they are working on. They said that's what they're going to use to launch Orbital Reef. They have... So even though Boeing is not in this announcement as a, a part of the Orbital Reef, like, inner circle, they specifically, in their press release, say Boeing Starliner, which, again, still not qualified to take people but they're working on it mm-hmm. boeing starliner is planned to provide crew transportation and that boeing will build science modules and run station operations so although lockheed martin is more integrated into the Starlab proposal than boeing is into the orbital reef proposal both of them are basically bringing in an aerospace heavy hitter to do this sort of like the cre- it's like the credibility almost to say well but we're having we're having Boeing uh, take us there, and also they will build the modules, and they will also run the station operations. So mission control for Orbital Reef would be run out of Boeing, hmm. and then Sierra Space will provide modules, and they say a, and Dream Chaser, which will also be used for cargo and crew shuttling if Dream Chaser ever kind of like gets to that point. And then um, they also, in the press release, mentioned a company called Genesis Engineering, which they say is working on something called the single person spacecraft. Which is, I'd like more information on this at some point, but it sounds interesting because what they're basically saying is we think EVA suits are a bit much and that what might be better is a little spacecraft that you can just step into as a person in shirt sleeves, they say, just a shirt sleeve environment and move it around and use like remote manipulation to like fix things on the outside, but Mm. not actually have it be built like a space suit. Um, interesting idea. I don't know. Like, is that a spacesuit by any other name? Because we always talked about how uh, spacesuits are technically spaceships, little spaceships, right? Right. And this is this is sort of going in that direction. They don't give a specific year. They say it's the second half of this decade, uh, whereas Starlab is just 2027, so middle of the second half of the decade. And they say when fully built up, it could host crews as large as 10 and uh, the design is basically a more more of a rigid uh, spine to the space station. And then they also have some inflatable modules yes. um, branching off from the spine. Because inflatable, because say what you will about poor Bigelow Aerospace, um, the beam test at the ISS, I think, showed that, yeah, inflatable space hab is a good idea and it's practical because beam, uh, I think, kind of proved that. And then there's the big one. This is, this is, this is, (laughs) and again, the way it's phrased is not that exciting. It's like saying that your mall is going to get a Nordstrom. But uh, this press release says NASA is planned to be the anchor tenant. Anchor tenant. (laughs) Anchor tenant. Again, there's going to be a bed, bath, and beyond over there. (laughs) 
you know, when the anchor tenant moves out, the space station's really going to fall apart. So this is where it gets really interesting. So so Starlab doesn't have this part, and this part is interesting. They're saying NASA has basically said, if you build this, we will pay for space on your space station, which is the whole idea of doing commercial low-Earth orbit space station stuff, is that NASA doesn't have to run it anymore, but NASA will pay for the space just like they've done with commercial crew and commercial cargo, where they, they don't own the spacecraft, but they pay for the rides. So that's what's going on here. NASA is planned to be a, the anchor tenant is a big deal. Um, and then perhaps the most intriguing part of all, which gets back to our whole question of what happens to the ISS when it gets decommissioned, is the project can use, whatever that means, can use, a Blue Origin-built space tug to collect usable ISS resources for orbital reef so the idea here is it's going to be at the same inclination its orbit as the iss so they say that they this is them making a play to basically say if there's stuff at the iss that could have its life extended at a point where the iss is getting decommissioned we we plan on making a play to take that stuff and haul it to the new space station and attach it. And I don't know whether that would be modules or uh, solar panels or what. I, I honestly don't know. Um, maybe it's docking modules. I don't know. I'm like, it, who knows what it actually is? But it's an interesting pitch put in the Orbital Reef document, which is not only NASA being the anchor tenant here, but that they want to have the, the capability of basically taking parts of the ISS off of the ISS and moving them to orbital reef. It is. It is totally wild. I mean, whether it whether any of this happens, I think is an open question, but I do think that this is somewhere in here, like I said at the beginning, somewhere in here is, or something like what's what these yeah. things are, is probably going to be the answer to what the future of the ISS is. And Orbital Reef, you can see they're making the pitch to basically say, NASA will rent space, we'll take some stuff from the ISS and stick it on, um, and we'll manage it with, Bo Boeing will manage it, you trust them, right? They're a big company, and that'll be the new space station, and you'll just pay us, and anyone can pay us to to work on it. And then that's going to be how their business model. I don't know. Does it work? I don't know. Will they have the money to build it? I don't know. Like it's all just kind of hazy future space stuff. And this stuff is often more, you know, it's not worth the paper it's printed on essentially, but it does feel like if we're going to have a continued human presence in space outside of the ISS and the Chinese space station into uh, the latter part of this decade, at some point, something is going to have to replace ISS. And it's probably something like one of these things. I find it really interesting how different the proposals are, where Star Lab is sort of like what we said, right? It's it's kind of the minimum you need to be a space station. Self-contained and kind of limited and like we're going to do enough that we can have some people and we can have some labs and 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 yeah, very sort of like stay within ourselves what's possible. Again, it may still be impossible, but it feels a little more restrained. Whereas Orbital Reef is very much like, what doesn't it do? It'll take pieces, it'll fit with your ISS. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll, we'll, bring, we'll bring that stuff over and it can expand and we can have as many as 10 people. And like, it, it's a much more expansive proposal. Pretty, pretty interesting. I'm super excited to see how this this all shakes out. It's going to give us stuff to talk about for the next uh, five years. It's good. More.
It's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, what are we going to do if there, if the SLS is launching and the James Webb Space Telescope is out, deployed and and if they they fix all the things with Starliner, like we got to have some other kind of thing to talk about for <laughs> for half a decade that isn't happening yet. Well, I think that uh, about does it, Jason. Yeah, I think so. I think so. That's a lot. I mean, this is. I feel like we got a new a new recurring segment in the making with the commercial space station. So we we may be referring back to uh, lift off 162 for a while as we uh, watch this stuff, you know, come and go and get delayed and get remixed and whatever else needs to happen. If you want to find links to the stories we spoke about, uh, head on over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 162. While you're there, you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up. Uh, and you can, of course, find us on Twitter. Jason is Jay Snell, and you can find me there as ISMH. We're going to do something a little bit different to wrap up this episode. Uh, this is a clip of uh, Haley Arsenault, the St. Jude patient who was aboard Inspiration 4. This is from the latest episode of St. Jude's podcast about the mission. And uh, I just really love this clip, so I want to uh, wrap up this episode by letting Haley play us out. When I saw the earth from the cupola, I was filled with just this intense feeling of gratitude. Like I could not believe what I was seeing and that I was getting to experience that. And that feeling of gratitude is gonna stick with me forever. You know, I've always had a lot of gratitude just to be alive for every single day that I've been given and for St. Jude, but it gave me a whole new perspective on, on gratitude. And, and I just, I can't believe that that happened to me. 